my baby, hello my baby, hello my ragtime gal, razzmatazz, ra da 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 da, la da 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 da. Hi friends, it's Victor Jory. Hang on. Hello my ragtime, hello my ragtime, hello my ragtime. There, that's enough that jazz. That's enough. It's a very nervous time here. Well, of course, you know, you work the best way you can. Sometimes, you know, when you're standing down there at the bottom of the hill and you're pushing those rocks up to the top of the hill, and sometimes you see that top of the hill up there and it looks like it's just a receding and going further and further away from you, you throw your shoulder in and you say, Forward! Come on, gang! Let's go! And you're pulling the whole lousy family along with you. What a struggle! Oh, wow! Sometimes you don't know where the tears are going to start, where the laughs are going to begin. All right, gang. Follow me. We pause for one moment before we get to the top of the hill for this brief word from our sponsors. Oh, wow. I once knew a spinster who worked on a plan to get her a husband. She wanted a man. She dressed like a flapper and lifted her pan. She hoped she would soon be a bride, bride, bride. Mae West was her model. She copied her stuff. Yes, but she hair's too skinny, not buxom enough. Oh, she just couldn't take it when fellows got rough. So she let down her hair and she cried, Oh, always a bridesmaid, but never, but never, but never, uh, never a bride. Oh, stick around, gang. Oh, on the shade of the old apple tree, we will sit here and sweat. We will scratch, and someday we may make it to the top. Yet, yet, on the shade of the old apple tree, rest in peace. Ah, so you're Oh, wowie, oh, wow, it's going all the way in the shade of the old apple tree. All right, gang, let's go, bring it up. Oh, don't stop now, baby. Shame, shame the old apple tree. Oh boy, what stuff happened there? Go 
gang, hold on, hold on. Hold on, the machine's winding down. Wait a minute. <laughs> Have you ever had the feeling that Sammy Davis Jr. is wound up? They plug him in in the morning and recharge his batteries. <laughs> oh, gang, there's nothing that recharges the batteries of a radio show quicker than a couple of quick infusions of commercials. Here they come. What's the matter? Don't you like surrealistic radio? Huh? That's the trouble with most people. Earthbound. Mudbound. Oh, come on. I don't mean you. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be... <laughs> A great sound. <laughs> Here is Maggie McNellis. <laughs> Crying out loud. <laughs> oh, shut up, will you? <laughs> oh, gee whiz, you know. <laughs> After all, what is life but a little kick sound then, you know, a little fun. All right, now, I'm not a please, you know. Gee whiz. You, can't, you, you never can get rid of the choir, no matter how hard you work at it. They're always up there in the loft somewhere ready to play. <laughs> oh, yes, I know. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a funny thing. Yesterday, we did a show on the sound of animals, and uh, the reaction was something fierce. No listeners. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 no, seriously, friends, this, uh, who was it who said that so magnificently? It was either, it was either Marcel Proust or Bert Parks used to say that so well. I think that is Proust. Seriously, friends. Uh, we fear, no, it was Dorothy Kilgallen. Yes, that's her style. <laughs> Gee, what a neck. Well, we'll be here for... Oh, holy smokes, what a chin. Now, hold it there. Now, hold it there, Dot. There, easy. See, we got these things going. You never know what's going to happen. But uh, I, I felt that uh, we ought to do another show that relates to the sound of animals and the sight of animals and the involvement that man has with animals. <laughs> Now, there are certain involvements that man has with animals, which we will not bring out today. There are women and children, all kinds of people around. We won't, we won't mention any of that. However, I will say this about the relationship that man has with animals. It is not very well recorded. Uh, now, I'm not talking about physical tape electronic recording. Uh, there's a lot of that around. I say, however, that, that you know, when we talk about animals, people immediately say, oh, he's going to talk about dogs. Oh, isn't that nice? Listen to the nice man, those gulls. And the next thing you know, you got Henry Mancini going. What is it, not gulls? Kittens. If they're crying out loud, well, all right, get the hot water going. Oh, <laughs> Did you hear him yell when I suggested that the only thing to do with a bunch of kittens that you can't get rid of? But uh, hold on there. No sounds now until we call for him. We're going to call for him very shortly. Uh, I, I love sounds, as you can tell. I'm, I'm a great nut for sounds of all kinds. But uh, today, I think what we're going to do on the show is deal with another one of those subtle aspects of being alive, being human beings. Uh, that has nothing to do in this case with the strange appetites that we've been recording. But let's put it on this basis. The unrecorded experiences of life 
themselves, uh, lives themselves, or life itself. Uh, when we talk about animals, most people think in terms of lassie. Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, you'll say animal stories, and they say, oh, oh yeah, black beauty. Uh, or maybe they'll think of the snows of Kilimanjaro if they're particularly literate. You know, they think in terms of Hemingway going off and shooting zebras. Uh, or they might think uh, of Moby Dick, which is not an animal story at all, matter of fact. Although tangentially, I suppose it is. If it's a story about man, it's a story about an animal. However, uh, the, the animal stories that, uh, that you often hear don't bear much relationship to the life experiences that we've all had with animals. Now, I, I count myself extremely fortunate in one very, very broad respect, and that is that I lived a good part of my life as a kid on the edge of a giant swamp. Now, I'm not talking about a human swamp. Uh, we, uh, we've all had that experience. But I lived in northern Indiana in a town which was attached to the bottom of Chicago the way some barnacle is attached to the bottom of a rusting scow. Uh, this town just hung on the bottom of Chicago. And on the other side of the town was the vast plain land that stretched all the way south, the vast Indiana farmland, and to the right of the town. Now, this is the most important part of it all. No, forget about sounds. I'll give you the cuckoo. Just let's just get organized in there. To the right of the town was the coastline of Lake Michigan. Now, you got this? The, 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 if you can imagine the, the Great Lakes, all of us have seen pictures of, of the maps. Most people don't really know what those inland seas do to the people who live around them. This is very unrecorded in fiction in America. We know what the sea does to the people who live in New England. Uh, they're seafaring folk. We all know about the fishermen of New Bedford and so on. We know what the sea does to, to uh, New York. Uh, all the immigrants and the, the, the great Coney Island, vast stretches of, of Long Island bays and inlets. We know what the sea does to California. But does anyone record what that great inland sea Lake Michigan does to the citizens of northern Indiana. This is a sea, you know. Uh, you can't see it. Uh, you can't see from one end to the other that lake. And it's as big to the, pe to the person who's standing by the shore as the Pacific. And it just stretches on and on and on. And, oh, boy, is it a sneaky sea. Oh, wowie. There's nothing as treacherous as a gigantic inland lake, far more so than the ocean, because the ocean is so big and so deep that it is not given to capricious moods. It's like a big, fat man. A big, fat man does a lot of sitting. And when he walks, he walks in a straight line, you know. <laughs> but let me tell you, boy, there are stories of, of, of freighters out on Lake Michigan. I can remember as a kid, a freighter breaking, off a mile, breaking up a mile and a half from our home, all in the space of about five minutes from a beautiful summer day, and suddenly that freighter is sinking in 600 feet of water. So, you know, you don't push this water around out there, and those wild, choppy, uh, insane inland sea uh, waves that just break things in half. And when you look, at, an, when you look at, a, at a freighter, you look at a freighter. We used to go swimming. You know, we're all down there. You want to hear more about this? We're all swimming in the dunes. You see, this, the, the reason that I'm telling this story is because it's connected with the animal world and all the sounds. There is an area on the far south shore 
of Lake Michigan. If you can imagine that lake, it sort of hangs down just like a great big sack. It hangs down and all the other lakes are up there going all the way up into Canada. And Lake Michigan hangs almost vertically in the country, just hangs down there. And way down at the bottom of it is Indiana. And Illinois comes together there. And right at that juncture is Chicago right at the curve of the lake, and it curves on up to Michigan. And if you go left, if you curve on west, it goes on up through Wisconsin until finally it reaches all the way up to, to a place called International Falls. Oh, wow, is that exciting. Eagle River. All those places way up on the edge, and that's called the Great North Woods. You've heard of that? And, and there are straits up there. What wild, wonderful Indian names the straits have that, that reach up into Canada, the Straits of Mackinac. Well, they call it Mackinac some places. Some places they call it Mackinac. I'm being, I'm being to the people that they say, what do you mean? It's the Straits of Mackinac, or it's Mackinac Island usually they call it, and Ma the Straits of Mackinac. However, yeah, that's right, see? Uh, they call it the Straits of Mackinac, but it's Mackinac Island. And they have islands up there called Beaver Island that lay in those wild straits. Now, if you're a fisherman and you don't know much about that area, I'm going to tell you a little story. This is a little brief uh, postscript story about fishing up in the Straits of Mackinac. And before we do that, let's stop here for a second. Let these guys get off the hook and we'll be right back. Well, up in those straits, the water, the water, before you go more, one thing, up in those straits, the water is, is insanely cold. The water up in northern, in northern Lake Michigan and in Lake Superior rarely gets warm enough at any time of the year to swim. The water is just a little above freezing all the time because it's so deep and uh, it's spring-fed up there. And up in that area, men fish. Uh, it's far more exciting in many ways than genuine deep-sea fishing because it's deeper, believe it or not. Men fish in long boats that may be 50, 60 feet long, and they sit at the back end of these boats with short, stubby rods, and they will have six to eight hundred feet of piano wire. Unreeled. The, the reason for piano wire we'll get to, but this is piano wire, and down at the bottom of that piano wire, at the end of it, is a spoon, a big silver spoon that's about the size of the average saucer. Huge spoon. On one side, it's copper. And on the other side, it's silver. And that great spoon rolls along the bottom of Lake Michigan, 600 feet deep up in that area, 500, 600 feet. And that spoon goes waggling through the water. And they'll fish up there for weeks without getting a bite. And then all of a sudden, boom, that rod bends double. And the boat, of course, is going against the current. The fish is going away from it. And it, it'll break any ordinary line. What are they hooked on to? 60, 70, 80-pound lake trout. Huge trout that come along and bang, they hit that spoon, and that rod just goes, and you can see that piano wire go, silver wire going down into that cold, clear, fresh water, way down into that green water, and they will fight that, they'll fight that fish for upwards of four and five hours before they get him off the bottom because he works against the pressure of that water fighting all the way until finally they land him, and there is that magnificent, one of the rarest of all fish, the huge Lake Michigan lake trout. Huge, fantastic fish. He just lays there, and, and uh, that, that is a true piece of big game fishing. 
Well, just a little bit north of that, deer, moose, and that cold, icy wind, even in the middle of summer, it comes down off those long tundra prairies of Canada itself. Well, now, way down on the southern end of that lake, which is about 500 miles long, four or 500 miles long, is a curving, arcing bit of sand that just arcs along the bottom of that lake, and that's called the Indiana Dunes. This is a genuine, unique phenomena in America. By unique, I mean one of a kind. There aren't many dunes anywhere in the world. Now, people say, what do you mean? We got dunes. We got sand hills around. No, you know what, you know what a dune is? A moving sand hill. These are rare. There's only four or five places in the world where genuine geological dunes exist. Hills that move. And I had a friend who had a home right in the middle of the Indiana Dunes, and his home was entirely swallowed up over the period of four years. They just This huge hill, six, seven hundred foot hill, just moved right across and just quietly swallowed his house. Gone. And I, and I think one day when, when uh, archaeologists are digging through that area, maybe a thousand, two thousand years from now, they will find total houses, complete houses, buried, sucked in, swallowed up by the sand. Well, now, another thing about this area that made it unique. Okay, Maury, one of the things that made this area unique, very interesting, was the, was the animal world that lived there. And to this day, they still, uh, zoologists and ichthyologists and so on, spend a good deal of time studying this area. It was one of the last places in the world where timber wolves existed in their free, unfettered state. That is, the last places in our country where the timber wolf was alive and around. And they were there when I was a kid. It was one of the very few places where the great snowy owl is seen. And the great snowy owl, I cannot describe to you what the great snowy owl is like. Uh, it's like seeing a genuine ghost. can't believe it. The great snowy owl will come down over, uh, who knows, out of the wilds of northern Michigan, along the lake, and suddenly he finds himself in that dunes area. And it's a natural place. Can you imagine uh, growing up in, in Indiana? Uh, in Chicago's on my left. You can see Chicago right over on the skyline. And walking by, by day and by night among fields of cactus. We had cactus in the dunes. And, uh, oh, many's the time I've spent days trying to get a, a little cactus spline out of my feet or my hand after I've chased a ground ball into the weeds up there. Well, uh, we had vultures. We had rattlesnakes. And, of course, we had the swamps. And uh, if you want to hear about the swamps, stay tuned. If a swamp scares you, look out. The sound of the swamp is many. Ooh. This is the sound of the swamp. Yep. Birds. That's the one thing I think about swamps. Birds. There would be millions and millions of birds for, for miles around the home, our home and the, and the block where I lived. In fact, the school that I went to was right on the edge of that big swamp that ran all the way on up to the Michigan border. Mile after mile of cattails and dark water, little sand hills, great arching oak trees, and elms, cottontails, and the birds. We could hear millions of birds at night and in the morning. Red-winged blackbirds by the thousands, blue jays. Oh, the blue jays are wild, beautiful birds. Blue birds. Have you ever seen flocks of bluebirds? And one of the 
prettiest of all is that little tiny yellow bird, the Phoebe. We used to get Phoebes, lovely like little jewels, Phoebes and Orioles. Oh, boy. And they'd be mild, and nobody thought anything about it. Great moving clouds of crows. Flying over the whole scene. The birds of the swamp. Hear it? Isn't that a great sound? You could smell that water. It wasn't it wasn't brackish water, it was fresh water from Lake Michigan. The water smelled good. And and down in the bottom of the water we would go saning. We would sane with with uh, with big uh, well we'd make nets and we called them sains. Actually they were just split open gunny sacks. You know what is it? A gunny sack? It's a burlap bag, for those of you who want potatoes coming them. And we would we would sane for crawdads. We would sane for lizards. Now what we wanted with lizards, who knows? We just sane for them. lizards and crawdads. I remember the time Flick is on one end of the sane and I'm on the other, and we're down there scooping it up. And we go, we're up to our waist in the water. Up it comes, and there are three great big fat cotton mouths going, swinging around. Into the water it goes, and out we go, out on the sand to sit scrunched among the cattails, looking at the mysterious water. <laughs> Listen to that swamp. Hear it? Oh, set that back, Mike. we got to have that. That's a great sound. And the, while Mike is resetting that sound, and I'll tell you the story of the time that uh, you want to hear the story of that, of that great ghost that Flick and Bruner and, and myself met one night in the swamp, I'll tell you that story scared the living daylights out of me, and as a matter of fact, to this day, when I walk past long, dark stretches of undergrowth and forest, I still see those two red-yellow eyes looking out. We'll be back in two minutes. Well, we would spend our... Saturday afternoons, you know, there's a, that's, that's one of the things that I consider myself fortunate about. That uh, I always feel a little sorry for guys who, who grew up in the confines of an urban existence whose idea of a big afternoon was to go to a movie, whose idea of a fantastic afternoon was to get taken to a musical by Mama. Uh, who, who when, whenever they thought in terms of, uh, they thought of, they thought of something called the country. Uh, have you ever heard that phrase? Kids talk about going out to the country. Well, that that meant nothing to us, you know. We didn't live in the country. We didn't think so. We lived where the, the swamp was as natural a part of our world as the subway is to the world of a kid in New York. I don't think a kid in New York thinks of himself as living in the city, capital. He just, you know, he's here. It's just as natural. They don't use those phrases really as much as they used to, actually, I suppose. Because the differentiation between the country and the city is not as clearly marked nor defined as it was then. Uh, so when you go up to Connecticut, you're not going to the country. The, the, the word is used in a very different context today. Connecticut is an extension of New York. Uh, it, it, it may have more bushes and more trees, but it's got the same drugstores. It's got pretty much the same Merritt Parkway world. It's got the same Howard Johnson's. Uh, but in those days, there was a there was a genuine swamp. No roads through it. Remember, that's genuinely the country. 
they didn't have it marked off with a with a big bridge over it. it says a bird sanctuary that way. This was just a wild place that nobody went to. And it stretched on endlessly, mile after mile after mile, along the shores of Lake Michigan. Now, as it got closer to the lake, it got more and more hilly, until suddenly, right on the actual edge of the lake itself, there was a gigantic explosion of the magnificent dunes. Now, these are enormous sand mountains that stand up in the air there, oh, maybe five, six, seven, eight hundred feet. And they're genuinely sand mountains. And up, uh, you can just see scrub pine growing all up the side of them. And little, uh, little stunted oak and one thing or another. But it's all this beautiful, brilliant, white, yellow, golden sand. Not grass, but sand. And we used to run from the top of one of these things, five, six, seven hundred feet, straight down. You could hardly remain standing because they, ooh, they'd come down. And we would climb at fantastic effort, ooh, sweating, struggling in the sand, until finally we'd get way up to the top. And it's hot, you know, it's summertime. And laying down at the bottom is that beautiful blue Lake Michigan. And you could wade out, you know, in Lake Michigan for maybe a half a mile before the water is over your waist. And you'd go over little sand bars, and you'd see the, the perch swimming down uh, on that, that clear, crystal white sand below your feet. It's not like swimming in, in the ocean. The water was as clear as crystal. The sand was as white as snow. There were no weeds. There were, weren't even rocks, just sand on the bottom of that thing. And sometimes when the water was still, it looked like there was no water at all. Have you ever, ever seen photographs, that beautiful picture they have of Bermuda, where the, where the boat is floating on top of that sand? That's exactly the way it was in Lake Michigan. And you, you, sometimes you would swim, and you'd see people swimming, and if you were a block away, it looked like they were swimming in the air. It's just enough that the, the water is that clear. It's crystal water, you know, it's spring-fed. And then way out, the water would get bluer and bluer until finally it would get kind of a slate green. And off on the horizon, you would see those fantastic lake freighters. A lake freighter looks like no other boat you've ever seen in your life. It does not look like the Queen Mary. It does not look like uh, an ocean freighter. You don't see many pictures of lake freighters. They lay so, so low in the water. And they're really just a whole series of tanks welded together. <laughs> they stretch some of those boats, you know. In fact, I think uh, I've heard the rumor, whether it's true or not, that the longest boat in the world, the biggest boat in the world, is a Great Lakes steamer. It is a boat that carries iron ore from up in Minnesota down to the steel mills. This thing is, uh, oh, maybe 1,500 feet long. Fantastic boat. And they would lay across the whole horizon. We'd see them out there moving across. And they, they're just like a thin line. And then at each end of the line, you'd see little cabins sticking up little cabin, you see a little antenna sticking up, and in between is that hold. Maybe it's filled with oil all the way across. Maybe it's filled with grain coming down to the Chicago granaries. Maybe it's filled, and this is most likely, with iron ore. And boy, when those things would get hit by those lake storms, sometimes they break right in half with all that iron ore, all that fantastic weight, and they go to the bottom in a second. Boom! Down they go. And the men would be almost invariably lost. They hardly ever saved anybody from one of those lake steamers when she went down. But we could see them going across the horizon, a long line, just going from left to right and from right to left. And the ones that went from left to right were always higher than the ones that went from right to left. 
because they were leaving the steel mills when they were going from left to right. And they had unloaded all their ore, and now they were floating higher. And they were going back for another load. Maybe they were taking coke back. Maybe they were taking a byproduct of the steel mill back. But they floated higher in the water. And we could see those long, thin lines of smoke. And there to our back, as we're swimming, is the swamp. It's the swamp and those long, rolling hills of the sand dunes reaching up. And those skulking timber wolves. And the great snowy owls. And the cottonmouths. And the birds. Always when we'd swim, we'd hear the birds. Birds constantly at our backs. Just on the other side of the last dune. Down there in that dark, soft water of the swamp. The birds. And the hot sun. The sky. And Lake Michigan stretching all the way on up to Canada. And the sound of the birds. This is the way to swim. This is the way to spend the Saturday afternoon. This is the way to watch that sky get darker and darker. And then, as it got to be twilight, the birds would gradually fade out. And there'd be nothing but silence. The birds are gone. And then you'd see a long, curving arc. All the way, if you're standing on the top of a dune... It seemed like forever and ever, from one horizon to the other, in a great moon arc, fires. People have lit fires down on the beach and are roasting hot dogs and are making their hamburgers. And it's oh so hot back in the city. It's 120 degrees, maybe, on some of those streets outside the steel. And they're all down on the beach now, sleeping down there in their blankets, cooking their cooking their hamburgers and their hot dogs. And then early in the morning, they stay all night, you see, over the weekend. And then Sunday morning, the birds start up quietly again. And the lake steamers start marching across the horizon. And the sky gets blue. The sun comes up. And the first people start going down to the water to swim in that, that crystal stillness. And the birds, the Indiana Dunes. Now you understand why they made such a fuss about them in Congress? Why they were fighting and yelling to this day they're trying to preserve them? There's nothing in the country quite like it. Those birds. There. You liked that, didn't you? Boy, we'll be back in two minutes. Well, you know, we had all kinds of things we do. Do you want to hear more about the dunes? Uh, one at one of the one of the best things that was really part of going to school in that area was the first day the kids used to go out. You know, the first big day. It's still cold. Oh, it's a hundred degrees below zero. But because it's it's March or April, you know, the kids begin to get the itch, and they go down to the dunes. They they knock off school for a half a day. And they, they split out and get into somebody's car, somebody's, somebody's uh, hot rod or something, and drive out to the dunes, just laying there after the winter. Boy, I'll tell you, there's nothing more uh, exciting than to see the summer begin 
in a place like the dunes where you can really see it. You can really see it. All way out in the water, you can stand up on the top of those dunes and you can see far out the ice flows. That's something you miss here in the ocean, you know. But Lake Michigan, during the depth of the winter, freezes practically, oh, miles and miles out. And then in the springtime, that ice breaks. You know, one of the biggest things that used to happen around that part of the, part of the country was when ice breakup time came and the first spring steamers came in. The first steamer would come in from up around Minnesota somewhere, Duluth, and you'd know that spring is on its way. You could see those big ice flows, like icebergs, floating miles out. Big, long, white, thin lines sticking high up in the air some places. And we'd stand up on top of the dunes with that icy wind blowing. Oh, boy, that icy wind is coming down out of Canada. And yet the sun is hot on the back of your neck. You, know, you feel that sun, and you know it's springtime, you know, in spite of the fact the temperature is now 31 degrees. And the water is just quietly rolling in down there. Not a soul. There isn't a beer can. There isn't a thing for miles. And off to your left, you can see the, the thin, wisping smoke of the steel mill reaching up into the sky. And I remember one particular day, oh, four or five of us, me and Flick and Bruner and Schwartz, took our afternoon off and went down, went down to the beach, at the, down at the big old Dunes Beach, and the temperature, oh boy, it was bitter cold. But it was so sunny and so wonderful and so spring. And you could hear off in the distance the first, very first, you know, one of the, one of the most fascinating things that happens in a place like the Dunes is that you can see the very first beginnings of the nesting. You can, you can hear the very first birds because one of the first things that happens when winter goes, the birds come. Now, you don't see much of that in the cities, uh, primarily because we're in the cities, you know. And the kind of birds I'm talking about are not city birds. Red-winged blackbirds do not come downtown in the loop in Chicago. Have you ever watched the red-winged blackbirds fluttering among the cattails? Oh, what a sight. Gee, they the little flashes of red, ding, 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 ding. And you see those big, beautiful birds, those red-winged blackbirds. Uh, one of my favorite birds, by the way, that magnificent yellow beak. And, and uh, right, right at the very crack of spring, it's not even spring yet, it's still winter, we could begin to hear the first birds. There they go. And I think it's the birds that made the kids go mad. Because the kids were like birds, you know. They began to feel the same urge. And we're standing up on top of that hill. And five minutes later, with the birds twittering at our back, we're standing right on the shore of the water. We're looking at the water coming in, rolling in over that golden sand. And way out on the horizon, the ice flows. It's March, maybe the first week of April. And the first steamer maybe came in a week, two weeks before. And we're watching that water roll in. And then Schwartz says, I'm going to take off my shoes. And the next thing you know, Schwartz is walking in that ice-cold water. Oh, boy, it's like a dry martini. I got my shoes off, and I'm... Oh, 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 wow! Flick's got his shoes off, and slowly we begin to work out, edge out. And the next thing you know, somebody's in. I think it's Bruner, maybe Bruner. He was the type. It's back, and he said, I'm going to take my pants off. And five minutes later, all five of us are out in that ice-cold, fantastically brittle water swimming, yelling, hollering, squirting water up into the air. We were with the birds. Oh, boy. 
And, of course, five minutes later, all of us are at home in bed, eating Vicks by the pound. <laughs> oh, we'll be right back. Oh, I'll tell you, there's no medium in the world, if I may be just a little bit chauvinistic here about this medium, there is no medium in the world that can reproduce that feeling like radio. I have read stories about the dunes. Poor guys try to write about it. You know, they write essays and stories about it. I have seen movies. They did a beautiful uh, television documentary on the dunes. But you know what you miss with, the, with those documentaries? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the poetry. You miss the poetry of it. All you can see are the, the hills or the trees. And on that little 12-inch screen or that little 24-inch black and white screen, it's, you know, you say, gee, isn't that nice? Isn't that fine? Isn't that lovely? But you don't sense the uniqueness of it. I've been in some places that I would recommend people who, who love America, and I happen to love it. I love America physically and, and every other way, but particularly do I love it physically. There are some places I would recommend to people, if they've never been there, go. Go. Have you ever been in the dismal swamp of Virginia? Oh, that's fantastic. Have you ever been in the Great Smokies? Oh, well, you know what I mean then. Oh, boy, I've been in Switzerland. I've been in a lot of places, but there is something mysterious about the Great Smokies. And they are that, you know. They're smoky mountains. There's a kind of blue-purple haze that hangs over them. And I, I, I can only say, if you've never been, go. There is another magnificent place that you must go to, the Everglades. Large numbers of people have never gone to the Everglades, and I was so delighted when I read a few years ago that they've made it into a national park and they're not going to fool around with it. They're not going to destroy it. They're not going to put hot dog stands and Howard Johnson is not going to get the concession. It is just going to be there. Go to this place. Uh, another place I would recommend absolutely without hesitation, if you're out in the east and you come to New York City, please take a day off of running around New York. Go straight north. Straight north. And go to Bar Harbor, Maine. And when you get up in Bar Harbor, it's only about a oh maybe an eight-hour drive from New York. It's only a two-hour airplane trip. But you get to Bar Harbor, you go to the Cadillac National Forest, which is all the things that you've ever dreamed that the rocky coast of Maine should be, but never quite is. Unbelievable, magnificent those lakes, laying down there at the bottom of those fantastic mountains the highest mountains on the eastern seaboard, just reaching to the sky with those strange little scrubby trees. And the moose, there are moose there, you know. There are deer there. And there are those huge mane hare, those great uh, mane rabbits. And then, of course, the sky and, and Frenchman's Bay and that, that schoonick, scudic. Scudic Island lying off the off the bow there. And once in a while, you can see a nuclear submarine coming in. I, I remember standing, it was a wild day, I must tell you. I'm standing there in this cold, brittle day, looking down over, over the ocean. And you see that archipelago reaching all the way. The next stop is Spain. 
or Europe or someplace, Greenland, who knows, and that archipelago is curving out there, and I can see that tiny town way down at the base of Cadillac Mountain. This is the Arcadia National Forest. And way down I see that tiny town of Bar Harbor, and suddenly I'm aware of a boat moving. It's the Nautilus. It's one of the atomic submarines way down there, and you could see all around it lobster boats with those fantastic little lobster floats, red and orange and yellow, and he just moved quietly through that still blue water. Oh, what a place. You want to hear about some other places I've been that I would recommend without, without hesitation? Go up to the Great Thumb of Michigan. Have you ever heard of the Thumb? Well, the Thumb is the part of Michigan that's clipped off right at the top. It's way up north of, of Hooton Lake, up north of Traverse City. The Thumb of Michigan is probably as close to real uh, up in that area, that little tiny. Take your map out and look at that little area where Michigan just sort of ends in a little thing. It looks like a little fingernail sticking up there. That is real wilderness. In fact, there are so many deer up there, you just have to sort of brush them aside as you go through those dark fir forests at night. Oh, what a place. Cold and lakes. Everywhere you look, lakes. Lakes, 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 thousands. And those fantastic Canadian geese just laying there, resting. I'll tell you about one afternoon when I, when I, uh, I lay in, in cattails next to a pond no larger than about a city block, a pond, just laying in the middle of November in Michigan with the deer, the deer moving down to drink. And I lay there watching this tiny pond that was just filled to the brim with smallmouth bass, little pond. And the entire surface of the pond was, was covered with a flock of great barred Canadian geese that had, had just quietly drifted down for a five-minute rest. The entire surface, there must have been 500 of them, all floating into the wind, facing the same direction, like, like a whole school, a whole fleet of galleons, those high, arching, brown and white, curving black necks, and all of them just laying there silently, facing into that north wind, and thus the edge of snow was drifting down. Oh, what a fantastic country we live in.